I make no money off of this podcast. Not a dime. Every so often, my sponsor, 503 Sports, sends me a free t-shirt or a jersey for my kid. But that's it. It's a true labor of love. And I'm honestly thrilled when people tell me they've learned from listening or they've picked something up or they even just get some enjoyment. That really does it for me. That being said, this week, my latest book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty is available everywhere. I work so ridiculously hard on this thing. I really put my all into the reporting, into the details. It definitely beat me up. So if you feel compelled to purchase a copy for yourself or a friend, or even if you're just kind enough to give it some love on social media, I would be really grateful. Thank you. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features, well, eh, me, Jeff Perlman, talking about my new book, Three Ring Circus, with my wife, the author Catherine Perlman, asking the questions about writing, the process, the highs, the lows, the more lows, and the more lows. I knew none of the questions going in, so it's just two people chopping some wood. This is episode number 174. Let's sling some yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. So, you ready for your podcast on your very own podcast? It takes a certain level of ego to have yourself as your own guest on your own podcast, or you're just desperately promoting a book. You know what? I feel like in life, there's not that many things that are accomplishments where you can like point to something you've done and you worked really, really hard on it. And this is one of those times. So I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about it. Furthermore, like this is how you make your living. So that's fair. And I do do the, I literally make zero dollars and zero cents off this podcast. So if I want to milk it every two years for, uh, that, that seems fair. Sure. Okay. All right. So you're the guest host today. I'm the guest host. I don't know. You are the guest. And to be clear, I don't know what you're going to ask. We haven't gone over it at all. I, it's, it's, I know nothing. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to start with just something really easy. You know, what is your favorite story from the book? It doesn't have to be like even a big fan. What's something that you just love that's in the book? Um, well, I love the fact that I, uh, I love that I only had an address for J.R. Ryder, who's known as one of the more intense and scary, um, players in uh, history of the NBA. And I just had an address in Arizona. So I, uh, I drove to his house and it's interesting. You wouldn't remember this. Oh, I remember. Well, no, I gave you my, the address of where I was in case something happened, which I usually haven't done when I knock on doors, but I did for that one. And, um, I showed up, it was nine 30 in the morning. I don't know why I got there at nine 30 in the morning, but that's way inappropriately too early to go to someone's house anyway. And, uh, I knocked on the door. I was very nervous. I had my USFL book with me. To show him I wrote a book, a little kid answered. I said, hey, is J.R. Ryder here? I'm a writer. And the kid went away and uh, the, a woman came to the door and I said, hey, my name is Jeff Perlman. And I'm trying to find J.R. Ryder because I'm working on a book and blah, blah, blah. And she said, hold on one second. And she closes the door and I hear an adult and her, an adult male and her kind of barking at each other. And then this guy comes to the door and it's J.R. Ryder. I'd recognize J.R. Ryder anywhere. And he's like, who are you? And I'm like, hey, my name is Jeff Perlman, and I'm a, I write, uh, I write books for a living. And I tried reaching you, but I couldn't find you. But I'm working on a book about the Shaq Kobe Lakers, and I think you're really an important blah blah. blah. Bro, bro, no, 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 bro, that's so not cool. You do not. What? No, you do not come. You don't just knock on someone's door. You fucking kidding me? That. And he opens the door and he comes out, and I'm like, oh boy. And because uh, this is a guy, this I write and tell you, he. He threatened to kill two different reporters in the, during That's his career. Awesome. And he's, uh, he's, he's a really tough guy from a tough background. And um, I held up my USFL book and I was like, well, I wrote this book and he's still going off on me. And then he goes, what's that? So what's that book about? And I'm like, oh, it's about the USFL. He goes, That's Trump. That's a Trump league. I'm like, yeah. He goes, so what are you writing about now? And I'm like, well, I'm writing about, uh, about the Lakers. And uh, you were there. And he goes, all right, man, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. And uh, he wouldn't talk to me then, but he gave me his number. And it's funny because John Wertheim, who we both know, um, he has dealt with J.R. Ryder and the Portland Trailblazers a lot. And he told me, I don't know if you're ever going to get that guy on the phone. And I ended up getting him for two hours and he was awesome. And you know that I um, have a nice history of knocking on doors, of stranger doors. Yes. And nothing, I think, encourages you more than someone saying, I don't think you're going to be able to get this guy. Very much so. You know, so then you really dig in. 
But to me, do you ever think, well, it's okay if, if somebody doesn't want to be found, you know, they're, they're not listing their address, they've dropped off the face of the earth and, or they're, they've had a troubled past. Like, why don't you ever say, you know what, this person maybe doesn't want to be found? Well, if someone, um, just because you can't find someone's phone number doesn't mean someone doesn't want to be found. Like I could, I couldn't find his phone number. That doesn't mean he was in hiding. And he had done, I saw an interview he did on YouTube, not that long earlier, a couple of years earlier. And um, I mean, I did a story on a guy, Sports by Brooks for Bleacher Report years ago, where it was just this track down, this epic track down of the guy. And by the end, I was kind of convinced he did not want to be found. Uh, and I stopped looking, you know, I, I stopped looking. So I'm not trying to ruin someone's life, but I didn't know he didn't, if I knocked on the door and he's like, I'm not talking, there's no way I'm talking to you. I'm not going to try again. Right. I'll be like, I was, that's okay. That's fine. That'd be the end but of why it. is it wrong to knock on someone's door? No. It's just a little scary sometimes. Yes. I, I, I give you credit for doing it. Mm -hmm. So I see the excitement when you get someone like this who you've never found, you know, or um, you didn't think would talk and then they decide to talk and you end up getting a great, you know, interview for your book. What do you love so much about reporting? What do you love about digging? Like you'll come out of nowhere and be like, guess who I found? And someone I don't know and I'll be like, yeah, that's great. You know, what is it about that? that kind of reporting that you like as part of writing a book? Um, I just, uh, there's something about, like I view, I view reporting as like a collection. It's like how I used to collect baseball cards. Like, you know, when I do interviews, I always print every interview out and I put them in a folder and I write the name on the folder and it's like a collection. Sometimes I actually like looking at all the names of the people I've gotten. It's just like a collection to me. And I feel like I was such a poor reporter when I started in journalism that it gives me pleasure being a good reporter now, or at least a, a decent reporter. And I also think like, there are a lot of people, I used to think, you know, when I was young and really cocky and stupid, you think like, oh, you're the best, I'm the best writer, blah, blah, blah. And it's obviously not true, right? Like there's always going to be better writers and there's always going to be better everything. It's just fact. But you can work harder than anyone. Like, you actually can work harder than anyone. You can control how hard you work. That's the one thing you can really is in your control hundred percent. So there are better writers than me out there in sports, but I don't know how many people there are, honestly, who are driving to Arizona to knock on Jared Ryder's door. I'm sure yeah. there are a handful, but I don't think there are that many. And to me, that's the stuff that separates and the little details and the little things you find and little moments and even telling the story of J.R. Ryder, not just the stuff he gave me, but telling the story of trying to find J.R. Ryder is kind of a cool piece of the book. So how many people did you interview for this book? Actually, I'm not sure. It's between, I think, three and 400, I think. The the problem is basketball rosters are smaller than the other sports I've written about. Yeah. So it's a, it ends up being a little less than other uh, things. Um, but I think between three and 400, I think. So how do you know when you've had enough? I just know when there's a deadline. And uh, But I mean, just even for like a certain time period or like a certain season or, you know, about the locker room or whatever, like how do you know when you've gotten it? I swear. It's honestly, it's my deadlines here and I got to move on. Like I don't. I feel like there's always stuff on the table. Like I feel like I'm always leaving stuff on the table that I shouldn't have left on the table. Like I don't, I don't like having, I don't like having holes. Um, I don't like having moments that someone didn't describe to me, big moments that people didn't describe to me. Like, uh, yeah, I just hate that. So there's always another call I can make. Like there's always another call I can make. I could write, I could take 10 years and write these books. I would lose my mind and you would lose your mind. <laughs> but I, I, um, I just, it's when the when the book is due, finally at some point I say, all right, I, I just have to write this thing because I can't do this anymore. And also there comes a point where I'm just beaten down and I'm exhausted and I'm like, almost feel like crying. Like I, you know, I'm working on a book now about Bo Jackson and promoting this book is a vacation from that. Like I was super hard into the grind and I actually think I was starting to lose my mind a little bit. I feel like I am now too, but in a different way. And I feel like um, this is a little vacation from that, which is helpful every now and then. Mm-hmm. To get, then you'll get excited to get back to it. Mm -hmm. So, um, I know that you like to be fair and unbiased and kind of show the true side of people. And, and we all know that people are nuanced and nobody is good or bad or total of anything. And so, uh, you wrote about Walter Payton and you unveiled that he had a son that people didn't, many people didn't know about, and he's a hero to many. And now you're writing about Kobe and you wrote this book, obviously, before he passed away. And you're writing about the rape trial um, and the allegations. And you know that you're going to hear from certain people about how um, they feel about that. So how? what are your thoughts on 
why it's important to write about the good and the bad and the unflattering if you want to show like a full portrait of somebody? Um, I mean, I hate, I, I, um, I hate it. Like I hate this. I actually hate this. I hate, I was thinking like, we always assume, especially we're on social media a lot, which I am obviously, um, you assume that everyone's on social media. You assume that everyone is hearing what you're saying and they're judging you based off of that. But the truth of the matter is there are a lot of people out there who are probably going to see this book come out and think, look, here's some asshole who's taking advantage of Kobe Bryant's death and he's writing unflattering stuff about Kobe Bryant. And holy crap, how did, really? You're doing this after he died? You know, like they don't know the backstory that I worked on this way before he died, that the book was done before he died. Like they don't, they don't under, they won't understand that. And that, it actually really um, bothers me, really bothers me. And it bothers me that there are people out there, there are just people out there who really love Kobe Bryant and believe in Kobe Bryant. And they don't need, they don't almost, it sounds dumb. They don't need this book. You know, like they don't need, they just love him for his work ethic and what he represented, you know, and they don't need this book. And I don't really want those people to read it in a weird way. Like, I don't, I don't want to ruin, I know you're probably thinking this is a horrible way to sell a book, but like, I don't want to ruin this for people. Right. And I don't, No, I don't think that's true, though. Like, to me, if I'm a deep fan, what I love is all the behind the scenes stuff that you don't really know. I mean, for me, when I read your books, I'm not I watch sports on TV. That's all I know. So when you're in the locker room or you're talking about the way they grew up or what it's like on the airplane or whatever, you know, these all the behind the scenes things, you really get to see a person and the experience. And as a reader, I really enjoy that. Nobody likes to read bad things about their hero. You know, that's difficult. For anybody, um, but why is it so important to tell it? Well, I mean, I think the uh, I, th- I learned a lot from Walter Payton, right? From writing about Walter Payton, and just actually from Walter Payton. And I do think, um, why does it detract from a hero to know that he had problems? You know, like why does it? It doesn't. It doesn't take away any of Walter Payton's rushing totals that he had a kid out of wedlock, right? It doesn't take away anything from his heroism that at the end of his life, he struggled with depression. It doesn't take away anything from him. It doesn't, it doesn't reduce a person to know that they have the same struggles you do and I do. And, you know, like, and I, I, I do think I hate the glorification of athletes without the understanding that they're just people and they have these ups and downs. And I think like Kobe Bryant and the, and the sexual assault case, um, Reading about it, I, I read the book again to sort of refresh myself. Reading those chapters, there's basically a chapter and a half, really two chapters that involve that period in his life. It's freaking painful. It's, it was painful to work on the first time, but it's really painful to read to me um, that he's no longer with us. But it does tell you about him and it explains a lot about him. And you can walk away from this. I don't. I don't think it's clear what happened in that hotel room that night. I think the one thing you walk away thinking at the end of the book and knowing how Kobe Bryant lived is, man, that guy freaking rebounded in a really incredible way. Like he, he was done when that happened. Like it was over. And then he's this guy, hashtag girl dad, you know, and like four daughters and this husband and this girl's basketball coach. And like, I think if you, if you don't know the struggles and him being a 22 year old asshole and unbearable and unlikable at that age, it's much harder to appreciate what he became. You know, it's hard to become something great when you were not so great. You know, like it takes work. And that guy like clearly worked at becoming something different than he was when he was just a young, annoying basketball player. I actually think hearing you say that, when I read these, the two Mm -hmm. um, chapters you're talking about, I actually thought you did a light, um, I think you could have gone way deeper if you were going for blood. You know, I think you could have um, made it more salacious. I think you did a very really? fair. Yes. I think uh. you did a very fair treatment of uh, that day. And what was so interesting is that the trial, the pretrial, it it didn't, you're not just giving a whole chapter to the days of the, the it's going, he's going back and forth and, it, and you realize how, you know, he still had a life. He still had a job. He still had all these things to do. So I actually think, you know, I can't speak for Kobe fans and I'm sure it would be painful, but I think you did a pretty fair job of putting it out there without making it like, look what we got. I think you did a nice job. It's funny how you and I both had a very similar reaction to rereading that chapter where you read it for the first time. I read it, I guess, for the 170th, but it's, 
um, call your lawyer, buddy, call your lawyer. He's, he's in the parking lot. The detectives approach, call your lawyer. I felt like reading that I wanted to stop go wake up my kids and say, listen, if anything ever happens, good or bad, something goes down and the police start questioning you, whatever you do, even if you did absolutely nothing, call your parents and call a lawyer. Like, just don't say anything because even well-meaning things. And I think in this case, he got really lucky. So one thing that really struck Wait, me- Wait, how did he get lucky? Because they- Oh, because he's not in jail. He's not in prison. He wound up in prison. It didn't, it not only did not yeah, wind up in prison, trial. it didn't go to trial. Sure. That seems lucky to me. I would say it's a little bit of luck and a little bit of uh, monetary intervention. Yeah. yeah. So what what happened there? Oh, I mean, he basically. I mean, this is all right. This is one theory that a lot of people in Colorado had that I believe, to be honest, is um, the case was going to go to trial, and his accuser, uh, the alleged victim, backed out. The DA was ready to go. Trial was going to start. The victim calls and says, "I've decided I'm not doing it." And, um, around that same time, they were negotiating for a a settlement with Kobe Ryan. She hired an attorney, a a civil attorney, and they ended up with a, uh, with an out of court settlement. And the DA really felt like this attorney cut, took the knees out from under the case. And that was it. And I mean, she, the woman just wanted it done with. It's really sad. Of course. And the national inquirers camped out in her garbage cans and like chasing her around. It's a rational, reasonable choice. So I still find the statement that he issued afterwards fascinating because it basically was like, I did it. I didn't do it. You know, it was like, I understand why she thinks this was rape. And I, I don't know. I read it differently. Honestly, I think that there are cases where men and women in the same situation misread the situation they read it differently sure and i think it is entirely possible that what was actually rape to her was consensual sex to him like he miscues and maybe there's a whole reason for that um but it is certainly possible that he didn't do something maliciously but he still did it yeah actually it's interesting because these kind of things don't allow for sports radio and sports talk and sports tv and sports dialogue don't really allow for nuance and I do agree with you. I actually think it's obviously kind of a guess because neither of us are there. Right. He left that room thinking she wanted it. You know, like I'm Kobe Bryant. Of course, she came back to my room. We're fooling around. She wanted this. And she left that room horrified thinking, what the hell just happened? Right. That's what I think. So it's interesting because one of the things I like about reading your books is as a social worker, I, I like to understand why people are the way they are. I like to hear about their family life and the way they grew up. And Kobe grew up as a star athlete, but also as a son of a star athlete. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he's not your typical kid. So what can you say, what in your eyes, he was not a typical man either. Like he was very one note, it seems like when he was playing basketball, he was very focused on basketball, but he, he lacked social skills. He lacked understanding of, you know, reading the room and understanding Mm -hmm. people what do you think made him that way? You know, is that somewhat, you know, just who he was? Was it his upbringing? I think it's a, a combination of a bunch of really interesting things, some of which have been discussed at length. Um, you know, he's a young black kid being raised in Italy, the you know, in a sea of no one who looked like him whatsoever. He was special from the time he was little. He was always yeah. special. Not just special because his dad was famous, special because he was really talented. Yeah. He moves back to America and... Now he's in the leafy suburbs of Philadelphia. Like people say Kobe's from Philly. Kobe is not from Philly. He's from Lower Marion. He's from, you know, uh, Mercedes and BMWs and suburbs. well-kept sidewalks and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So again, um, one of the very, very few black kids in this environment, right? He goes with Brandy to the prom when Brandy's this huge star in this on this arranged date, a woman he'd never met before. He just liked her. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is he uh, – he shows up. It's a really weird time for basketball. As you know, one of my good friends is Russ Bankson. And when Russ and I, we used to uh, room together and he was the editor of Slam Magazine. This is around the time Kobe was entering the NBA. And um, Slam was all about the merging of hip hop and basketball and culture. And it was tattoos and cornrows and trash talk and uh, Tupac and Nas and, and, you know, like all this, right? All merged into one. And players were really shoehorned into this to a certain degree. Like it was a way to be. 
There's a way I had to dress, a way I had to act. It just came with it a little bit. And I remember Kobe being on the cover. In fact, I remember saying really funny. There was an issue when Kobe was on the cover and on the inside spread, he had a white head on his forehead and they forgot to airbrush it out. And it was like, it actually, I thought about that so many times how he just didn't fit that. He wasn't Allen Iverson from the tough streets. He wasn't brought up in the projects. He wasn't, he wasn't, you know, a fuck all y'all. He wasn't that guy actually, but he was supposed to be that guy. And he was really good looking and he was smooth and he was young and he was cool and he was playing for the Lakers and he was supposed to be that guy, but he wasn't that guy. And it's one of the most awkward fits ever. And as a kid, always trying to be, if you look early also, he was always imitating Michael Jordan, Mm -hmm. always from licking his lips to his cadence to everything about his game. And it almost came off. It did come off to a lot of teammates. It's kind of laughable. Like you're trying to be this imitation. And the crazy thing, if you want to look positive or impressive, he pretty much became Michael Jordan. Right. Like that's amazing. But it was always awkward. Yeah. Um, I find him a fascinating character because he is so n- not nuanced. He's no. so basic and so one note. Um, he's He's kind of sad though. Like it's a sadness. I don't view him as like, I don't view him as a jerk, even though people viewed him as a jerk at that age. I view him as like a puppy trying to figure it all out and trying on every he basically tries on every mask and every suit trying to figure it out. But how never... is that so different than a lot of people? You go to college, you meet new friends, next thing you know you're wearing Doc Martens or you're listening to this kind of music or Because it all is happening in the huge public light. True. But right. I, I think that's unfortunate, but I don't think that's so different than, you know, regular people and um, I guess so you're 17 years old entering the sea of famous, rich, televised, you know, it's just tough. And then you have this dominant yeah. persona standing right next to you, seven feet tall and 300 pounds. And it's a big shadow, you know? Yeah. So towards the end of the book, um, it's during the pretrial for the rape case and Kobe's going back and forth between Colorado and then coming back. And you have like a couple of times where he's like literally like from the airport off the, you know, onto the court, you know, the game has already started. It's, it's, it's kind of drawing to see that juxtaposition. And there's this one time during the playoffs, I'm pretty sure it's the playoffs. And he, he, same thing. He comes from Colorado. He has a short time before the game. He plays the game. He comes back into the locker room and he collapses. And, um, you write even Jackson who wanted Brian banished to Siberia or Milwaukee couldn't contain his bewilderment. This kid he wrote is remarkable. And it kind of like, I, I thought that was so interesting. Like, he's remarkable. Like, his play is remarkable. Or is it remarkable that he's able to, like, put things behind him while he's on the court? Like, I don't know. I just thought, is he remarkable? Besides his gift. Besides, of course, anyone who's in the NBA is remarkable. I thought he was remarkable. In what way? He was, the level of shit he was going through, right? I mean, it's really, it actually, you'd get up. At four in the morning, he'd fly to Eagle, Colorado. He would have his day in court. So it's not just, you don't know, you're sitting here thinking, I might be going to prison for 20 years, right? This is why I'm I'm flying to Colorado every morning. I'm getting up at four, flying to Colorado to find out whether I'm going to prison for 20 years. Hearing these people say every bad thing about me and what I did. You're there all day. Then you fly back. You get whatever amount of sleep, barely any. I don't even know if you can sleep going through this all. You get to the arena. It's not even that long of a flight. You're the thing, oh, it was like two hours. Yeah, but that's not wait. See, here's what I disagree with you though. Like, it's one thing if you're like, and then he came back and he was able to get his degree or whatever. He was able to get a B in the class, but like, he was playing at the highest yeah. level possible yeah. against the greatest players in the world at an insane level. And the one of the toughest things in sports I've seen through my career is the ability to block out things when you're going through hell. You know, it's like. It's like Brett Favre playing a Monday night football uh, on the day his dad died and having this knockout game. The reason that's so amazing is because it just doesn't happen that often. Usually you actually miss the game. And it would have been very easy for Kobe Ryan not to play in those games. Just be like, I need to focus on my personal life. Yeah. I just think, I'm not saying in the grand scheme of life, it's one of the great accomplishments of all time. But in the context of basketball and concentration and the ability to just will yourself to do something, it's pretty freaking remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, I actually thought the whole idea of going back and forth and how he's living his life and he's still at this high level and then he's going and sitting in court and then in his as a defendant, you know, and then yeah. coming back and forth that that that's pretty crazy. 
One of my favorite things about you reporting this book was you going to Montana to visit Phil Jackson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Montana's my favorite state. Yeah. And I just pictured this, like, other life. Like, you know, you see you see him on the court and you think of him a certain way. And then he's just this guy showing you around Montana. What was that like? I just want to say it's funny because we haven't had that many of those since we've been together. But it reminds me of... Um, when Sports Illustrated sent me, I hear you say Molly Sims. and uh, Sports Illustrated sent me to, they used to send reporters, writers, as almost like a reward for a good job to go into swimsuit shoots and you write about the place. It was basically like a good job. And I went to uh, Meeker, Colorado, to a lodge. The motto was Molly Sims, and I'm there for like oh four days maybe, and it was really expensive. Obviously, I didn't pay for a thing, and I'm like going skeet shooting and horseback riding and and. Uh, I think we discussed you possibly being able to come, but you weren't able to come. Like, they, No, here's what happened. Did I screw you? Yes. The funny thing is many girlfriends and wives, if their partner is going off to, you know, be at this small, intimate, expensive resort with a, a famous model, you know, is like concerned about the model. I didn't care a teeny bit about Molly Sims. What I cared about is fly fishing and horseback riding. And you'd be like, I can't talk now. I got to go horseback riding. I'll call you in like an hour or so. So, but the reason I didn't go is because um, our friends at the Wertheims, he would sometimes go and, and, and his wife would also accompany him, but you didn't feel comfortable asking. I did not. So that's why I didn't that's go. That's fair. Um, I a did not. social work. I'm just going to end it right now. I'm going to end the speculation. I did not have sexual relations with Molly Sims. <laughs> yeah. I did see her breasts exposed though yeah. on a shoot. Exciting. Um, oh, anyway, so, uh, back to Montana. Oh. Yeah, it actually, for me, it did feel like that because not that I care so much about Phil Jackson, but the idea of him like showing me his world in Montana, that just seemed like such a cool thing. It was great. It was, um, it's funny because the day was better for me than it was for the book. Like, it was good for the book. I got good quotes. It was more though, this amazing reminder of why this job can be so awesome. You know, like, First of all, all props to Jeannie Bus because I texted Jeannie or I emailed Jeannie and I was like, um, I don't do, you, I need, do you, if you were me, how would you reach out to Phil Jackson? And she actually was very gracious and she said, well, let me email Phil. And he wrote back to me and said, um, when do you want to talk? And I said, would it be okay if I flew out? I met you. And he said, okay. And I met him at a coffee shop and um, I said, I want to thank you for doing this. And he goes, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for Jeannie. And I was like, fuck, this isn't going to go well. And then... Um, I was usually I ask if I can curse on the podcast, but since this is my podcast, I can say whatever the fuck I Go want. Free. And um, <laughs> and uh, then he's like, "All right, I thought we'd. Uh, I thought that's it. I'll get an hour and then I'll fly back." He's like, uh, "You want to? Uh, I thought we we take a ride around this lake and I'll show you around and we could just talk while we drive and and uh, we did that. It was like a three hour beautiful, beautiful lake and and we stopped for lunch at this little cafe and the owner's like hey Phil how's it going ah oh, this is Jeff and he's here blah 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 then we um i went back to his his house which is beautiful and just serene and we're sitting on the patio and there were both in rocking chairs at one point i remember this recently there was a there's a cat crawl like a stray cat just climbing on my head right and on my body literally climbing and it went under Phil's chair and at one point Phil did the rocking chair accidentally on the cat's tail yeah, which reminded me of the time I was with former Met Jesse Orozco and he ran over a cat accidentally in his Humvee. Anyway, then I thought we were done and he's like, yeah, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a nap. You want me for dinner, for dinner later? <laughs> I'm like, I? great. And, um, it was like eight hours with Phil Jackson and he, uh, it's actually kind of a funny reminder. Like we think of these people, famous people, I don't as much as I used to, but still you do like this. They're busy and their lives are this and that. I honestly think he was just happy to have someone to show around Montana. You know, and right. talk. And also, like, we probably talked 40% Lakers, 60% books, travel, life, experiences. Um, he's one of the rare guys I've interviewed, certainly coaches, who asked a ton about me. Like, it wasn't just him blabbering on. Mm -hmm. He was like, oh, so what's your wife doing? Blah, blah, blah. Does she like that? You know, blah, blah, blah. Like, he was really cool in that way. Did you tell him I'd like an invitation to his home in Montana? Please? I did not. No. Oh, sorry. Well, Phil Jackson, if you're listening, I'd like an invitation to your home. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey. Must be exciting for you, a dad with a new book out. How many times do I have to go through this crap? Oh, my dad has a book out. Wow. Let's get him a cake and sing his praises. Wow. You're going to be on Sports Talk Radio? Does anyone even listen to that garbage? 
I don't even know what your book is about. It's about the Lakers and Shaq and Kobe and Phil. Can we just cut the crap and do what we're here for? Direct people to 503-sports.com and sell 503 Sports t-shirts and hats and throwback jerseys because they're way more impressive than some book about the Dodgers. It's, it's the Lakers. Like I care. You mentioned that towards the end, Shaq is talking about his contract and he's making something like $20 million. Mm. And you say... Never, he, that he says, never ever devalued. I will never take less than I am worth. And, you know, okay, I get there's market value, right? And I get that athletes make a ridiculous amount of money for, sure, it's a hard job, but come on. It's, yeah. it's a pretty, Not great, that hard it's a pretty job. great gig yeah. considering the, the jobs people have in the, in the world. And, you know, there's something, you know, about the idea of like what you're worth and, and, that I admire, you know, it's like, we should, I should think about what I'm worth more, you know, I should take a lesson from that. But then there's also something that's like a little repugnant where it's like, you get other people are are like slogging away for, you know, just enough. Like most people in America barely have anything saved up. So it's like, how can these people be so normal in some ways and then so abnormal just in this other bubble of like so clueless about what it's really like in the rest of you know all the people who are their fans are just completely living different lives we have to remember the vast majority of players in pro sports certainly in the nba don't come from money like shaquille o'neal did not come from money he's Mm -hmm. from newark new jersey Mm -hmm. um kobe bryant came from a comfortable background you know but most of these guys Almost everyone in this book did not come from a comfortable. I mean, Phil Jackson, who had a long NBA career and a fruitful NBA career, is, you know, he's a kid from Dakota who, like, was raised by, uh, you know, a religious, uh, basically religious traveling tent people. Like, they're not rich people. And I do think a lot of them, like, I just think a lot of them make it and have never had this kind of money before and just really want to hold on to it and worry about losing it. The other thing about sports is there are just too many stories of people losing their money. I think a lot of athletes get very nervous about that, you know? And, um, and also, I mean, like when Shaq signed with the Lakers, it was either the Orlando Magic, who he played for, or the Lakers. And they were going back and forth. And Shaq desperately wanted to be the highest paid player in basketball. And he was offended that the Orlando Magic were not paying him more than like Jawan Howard was getting from the Washington uh, Bullets at the time. Or Bullets, I think. Um, on the one hand, that's super weird. Like that's super weird, right? Like who, what do you, who cares? Like you're making gazillion dollars. You'll never have to work again. Why do you care? And on the other hand, in that world, um, and at that age, you think about where you are when you're 25, 26 years old, like you want to be known as the best and you want to get what you're worth. And you feel like also like the other thing that needs to be said the reason these players make so much money is because these teams make so much money. Right. So the ownership is pulling in oodles and oodles and oodles of money. In that context, it is almost unfair to say, why does Shaq, why should Shaq get so much money? It's a better question. Why are the Orlando Magic charging me $7 for a hot dog? Yeah. But do you think then that players have an obligation to do more to give back or not really? It's funny. I don't think they have any more of an obligation than we do. Mm-hmm. I really do. Like I think – it's all levels. So let's say we say, Shaq, you make $20 million a year. You should be giving X amount of that, right? Well, are we giving X amount? Are we giving the same percentage? Are we, are we making – I'm not saying we're Probably. not. Right. No, I think we are. But I'm saying in general, like if you're saying that, you better be donating too or donating your time if you can't donate money. or do, Like the expectations we have on these people because they make shitloads of money, but we don't place any expectations on ourselves to be terrible. Not fair. True, but I think to myself, like, I try and live a life where I do good for other people. And, you know, you do what you can monetarily, you do what you can with your time, you volunteer, you support people, mm-hmm. causes, things like that. And I think we do a pretty good job. And I think to myself, oh my gosh, if I had $20 million just one year, the amount of good that would bring me so much joy in doing, like, th- that's a gift. I will say this. Number one, as we, we, we've discussed in our house, and, um, I mean, LeBron James starts a school. You know, yes. like he's actually, to me, guy like that's putting his money where his mouth is, or at least is trying to. Um, Shaq was one of the most generous athletes I've ever written about, if not the most generous. And I think I told you this when I'm when I was with him in Atlanta, he stopped the interview at one point because his daughter called and FaceTimed him. And I'm sitting right there when this happened. He was there was no performance hardness. He's like, "Hey, baby, what's up?" And she's like, "Daddy, you know, uh, 
I forgot who it was. I was like, my friend's mom just died and it's really sad and more sad. And he goes, um, listen, I'm paying for the funeral. Make sure all the bills come to me. Okay. All right. All right, daddy, you're the best. Love you. Bye. Click. We're back to the interview. And throughout reporting this book, the number of times Shaq offered to pay for a teammate's parents' funeral, the number of times he offered to fly a teammate's parents in, the number of times he was buying people suits, the number of meals he must have paid for was yeah. in the gazillions. I mean, he was as ge- – I've never, ever written about a more generous or gracious teammate. He had flaws like everyone does, but the generosity – so there are people, I'm sure. I'm not sure he qualifies. He's pretty freaking – yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not even saying him. I mean, just in general. Yeah. Why do you hate Shaq so much? Actually, I love Shaq. I, I do think too. I think he's pretty great. Yeah. Um, he's kind of the hero of this book. I had one player who's read the book. I won't say his name. And he's like, you got Shaq. I mean, Shaq, he goes, Shaq is just the best. You just, you got him well. And uh, I think for you, you know, writing, even if you're writing about other people, it's a very vulnerable thing when your book comes out. Oh. <laughs> so really? You think? Is it understatement? You know, it's like this is your baby, and you've worked so hard at it, about it, and the at it, and the worst part is you're writing about other people's lives. So it's really scary about putting yourself out there. So you know, you have one more day until of nobody having read this book, and then you start getting feedback. You start getting feedback. So how does it go from the fear and dread and excitement you feel right now? And then it's kind of almost like an arc where where you start, even if it's like Kirkus or Publishers Weekly, you know, you start getting reviews and you're like, okay, maybe we'll be okay. Like what kind of goes through your mind? I mean, you live it. You see it. Yes, I mean, I'm going through, I do, but the other people I'm going through a major it. health anxiety attack as we speak, you know, like it's, it's, um, it's really hard to describe. I mean, it's, it's like, you think you have it under control. Like you think, okay, you're prepared for everything and blah, blah, blah. It's only a book. Like it's not, it's not the end of the world. It's not Woodward coming out with whatever rage, you know, this is a different level obviously. And, but feedback is scary. That call you get from the first player who's pissed off is not fun. You know, it's pretty inevitable. It comes with every book. Um, inevitably some fan is going to write you and say, like, I know I have a mistake in this book. Someone pointed out to me, freaking kills me. I had Jerome Kersey, who was a Laker for a year. I said, oh, I don't, I have no idea how, I don't even know how this got through, but it said that he averaged 24 a game one season. And I know Jerome Kersey and averaged 24. A game. You know that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, like, I don't know how that got in there. Maybe it was his playoff average. And I hired two fact checkers for this book. And obviously they do a legal check, but so I know in the next edition, I need to change that stupid Jerome Kersey. Thing. And, that shit eats me up. And there'll be Laker fans who will be like, it's almost inevitable. In Sacramento, there was three seconds left, not five when he hit that shot or blah, 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 blah. It reminds me of your first book. The, oh. the cover had the wrong day of the week. On the fake newspaper. On the fake newspaper on the cover. Yeah, and people like, notice oh, that. Oh, gosh. But God. sports fans are that. It's about yeah. sports fans. And that's, I grew up a sports fan and I'm exact. I know all this. I know so many stats and so many blah, blah, blah. And it bothers me when stuff is wrong. So I get it actually. And, um, and also like, it's almost people, non-sports fans don't get it, right? I feel like you're enough of a sports fan that you get it, but like this stuff matters to people. Like it does. And like yeah. it's their memories and in some cases it's their childhoods. It might be what they were watching in the hospital when their mom was sick. It might be- The only they, connection they had to their parents. They were in rehab and they were watching yeah. it and the only thing, or or they had de- or Kobe, just, he taught me how to believe. Like it means stuff to people in, in very real ways and- I, I get that, right? But that intensity, you get a piece of that intensity when a book comes out, you know? But I think that, you know, just having watched you work on so many books over the years, of course, there are always mistakes, but you really care about getting the full story and double checking things and getting another source and making sure that it's right. And I think that it's still, a bit, I don't think people realize how scary it is to put your book baby out in the world. Like it is super exciting because you've been waiting for this, but also it's really makes you nauseous. You but know? the other thing is it's like the flaw of, but there, there are two flaws of the medium, right? Number one is you can't be inside someone's head. I can't be inside someone's head. So when Kobe's standing at the free throw line, for all I know, he's thinking, I can't I get home. <laughs> I can't get, I need a big Mac or I can't wait to get home and watch yeah. It's the Simpsons. I've n- I've no idea what he's thinking. So one thing I no longer do that I'm sure I used to do is be like, 
what went through his head was so-and-so. The only time in this book where that even comes up is he talked in some interview about something that went through his brain and I, I used it. The other thing is you are relying on people's memories, right? You're relying on people's memories. And the one area where I am sort of willing to rely on people's memories is dialogue, right. where someone will say, Phil called me. Like, here's the reality of it. Phil called me in his office. Well, what'd you say to him? I said, Phil, you're out of your fucking mind. He probably said, Phil, you're fucking out of your mind. Or Phil, what the fuck? This is bullshit, blah, blah, Like, And I don't really know a way around that. Like, I will trust people's. And when people, if someone was the only person on a flight, just as an example, they're on a flight and the flight attendant comes on and says something. And this was a guy on the flight. I kind of have to trust him. I'm not going to trust him with like, you know, uh, Kobe rapes. I don't know. Like there are things, right, right. but like you are relying on memories. You are reliant on memories and you can't be in people's heads. And yeah. Those are two flaws. But also anytime you can triangulate, you do. Yes. You know, so True. that I think makes it better. Yes. So, okay. I have two last things. One is. That's it. Just two. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, it's been a while. It's only been 38 minutes. Oh, I'll keep going. You're doing great. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had a, everyone that was on the roster during the writing, during the season, you know, the seasons of this book, plus Phil Jackson, Who'd you take on a two-week vacation? <laughs> you stole my favorite question. First choice. Oh, my God. I've been subjected to this so many times. That's my – so I'll be like – I'll say like two people who she has struggled with. I'll be like, who'd you rather go on a vacation? So-and-so-and-so. Or who'd you rather go on a vacation with? Your mother or so-and-so? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Usually you pick two people I'd never in a million years want to go on vacation with yeah. and make me decide. And I usually say I'm not going. But this is the easiest question ever. Okay. Shaq. Yeah. Shaq would be great. He's so – he's just – We've talked about this in this house. I really believe this. Muhammad Ali was a standard bearer throughout much of his later life as a guy who made people feel good wherever he went, right? Yeah. And you'd see Muhammad Ali. I had an experience with Muhammad Ali. He's, I was sitting next to him and he goes, um, it's actually a great story. I'll just tell because it was me and Dick Shap and Muhammad Ali sitting next to each other, which is an amazing trio. Actually, duo, not me. I mean, it's amazing to be next to those two guys. I'm sure they were like, wow, I can't believe I'm a Jeff Rowe. Wow, 27-year-old sports illustrator. But we're at this event. It was just some promotional event for Muhammad Ali Center in Kentucky. And Muhammad Ali falls asleep at the table. And the guy running the meeting goes, right, champ, right? And uh, Muhammad Ali is pretending just to be asleep. He's right next to me. I'm sitting next to Muhammad Ali. And he goes, he stirs to his his... Awakeness. Do you remember the story? Yes. And he goes, there's a black man, a Mexican, and a Dominican guy in a car. Who's driving? And the guy goes, who's driving, champ? And he goes, the police. And then he just falls, pretends to fall back asleep, right? He probably told that story eight million times. I'm sure the other guy was in on the gag, the whole thing. He made you feel good, right? And I feel like nowadays in society, in America, Snoop Dogg, Dolly Parton, Shaq are the three people who have carried that sort of mantle. When you see them, and it doesn't matter if you're black or white or poor or rich or Republican or Democrat or Trump supporter or Biden supporter, you see those people and there's something that has a glow to it and makes you feel good. Yeah. And you feel open to walking up to them and talking to them. Shaq is one of the most embraceable. He just is. And even being with him, I think I had like an hour and 20 minutes. It wasn't an insanely long period. You felt like he was with you. He's just a nice guy. You know, he's just like a nice, decent guy who his whole thing with the Lakers, he wanted to win. He wanted to be famous. He definitely could be moody, blah, blah, blah. But he's like the anti-Barry Bonds. I used to say Barry Bonds went out of his way to make people feel bad. Shaquille O'Neal went out of his way to make people feel good. I think he still does that. Yeah. That's pretty awesome to be that charismatic where you just bring your happiness with you wherever you go. Yeah. So what is it like? Yeah. Um, It's funny you say about Dolly Parton because – I recommended a podcast about oh, yeah. Dolly Parton. What was it called? I forgot, actually, all of a sudden. Anyway. But um, I recommended it to my friend Ellie, and um, it just was so joyful. Like, she, there's something so mm-hmm. special about her, and she called me today to say she finished it, and that brought her so much joy. She was so happy. She's like, now what? Um, but I think there are those few people. Who would be your second person you're taking if you could bring a friend, like, from the roster? I think I would take Rick Fox. I had a great time with Rick Fox. I know... Everyone thought Rick Fox, he was obviously a really good looking guy. Actually, you met Rick Fox. I did. It's so funny. The funny thing is, you know, you see someone on TV Mm -hmm. and I know that basketball players are big people, but um, when I did meet him and I did shake his hand, I just felt like this hand was Mm -hmm. like this gigantic, gigantic hand. It was really funny. I just, 
not how tall he was. It was something about his hand. I'll say something kind of weird, right? I don't want this to sound like self-glowing or whatever, but like, and it's, the funny thing is it's not really a big deal when it happens, but you know, if you told me like 20 years ago that I'd be like writing these books and like, you're going to Atlanta to hang out with Shaq and you're going to Montana to hang out with Phil. Oh, and they're making a, they're making a show based on your first book, HBO, isn't it? Oh, here comes Rick Fox because he was part of the consultants. Oh, Rick, this is my wife. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, how's it going? Like, it's like crazy talk, you know? It's like, it's crazy talk. And I, I do feel like this year has sucked every possible way imaginable. It is beating me down. It's beating you down. We still get along, which is a freaking miracle. But like, it has sucked. Our dog died. Grandma Sandy died. Yeah. We live in a place where the, the fires and COVID, it's just, it's exhausting, right? And I do feel like one thing I do not do enough is appreciate, like, I mean, this is, this is actually my dream. This is my, my dream was to do this, right? Not this big though. Like my dream wasn't to do this. My dream yeah. was to be a sports writer. That's yeah. it. You know? And like, I'm not saying I'm Dick Shap, but like this career is way exceeded what I thought it would. That's, ins- you know, like I don't appreciate that enough. It's such a freaking shame. I feel like you need a post-it on your computer because there are, you know, writing, being a writer is lonely. It's a hard job. It's there's cycles of, you know, feeling that come through. There's oh. anxiety and all these things that are part of the process. And I think it is such a gift to be able to write people's stories, to have your own time, to be your own boss, to meet interesting, incredible people who've done really incredible things. And I, to be able to ask questions that other people aren't allowed to ask is one of the best things ever. Yeah. You do like to ask a lot of questions. I do. Yeah. So, well, that leads me to my last point, which is, I will say. Then I want to ask you a question afterwards. Okay. Okay. First of all, the podcast I think was Dolly Parton's America. Okay. Okay. The thing I wanted to say. You're doing a great job, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. I'm doing a great job interviewing you. No, you just, these are good questions. Thanks. Okay. So what I wanted to say is that, you know, I, I see how hard you work on this book and Sometimes people meet you, and no offense, but you you wear pajamas like as regular clothes. You love flip flops or no shoes. You know you wear a baseball hat like you're unshaved. You 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 look like a guy who doesn't work. I'm like an in shape Michael Moore. Oh, okay, sure, an in shape Michael Moore, <laughs> studly, hunky Michael Moore type. And the thing is, no, I'm just saying he always looks like a rumpled napkin. That's well, that's you. But yeah. so when people meet you. Or, you know, I remember at elementary school, people used to see you all the time for pickup or, you know, you're around the neighborhood, you're walking the dog in the middle of the day. And, you know, people who meet you and see you're very relaxed. I don't think they realize how hard you work Mm -hmm. and living with you. You're always working. Sure. You're taking a million breaks. You're always with us as a family. We're also always working. You you don't go to bed barely ever before one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. I'm better about that, though. Okay, but you still yeah. work pretty late at night. You wake up early. You work all day. You know, you're you're not a person who I feel like isn't around. You're around, so you do take a lot of breaks, and you're really with your family, and you're really committed. But also, you work really, really, really hard, and you really care. And I just want to say that I see it. I'm very proud of you. I love your book. It's gonna be. It's gonna really do well in in people's hands, and uh, you should be proud. Oh, you actually brought tears. Oh, honey. <laughs> I mean, I think I work probably a little too. I think I've, I need a little more balance. I need a hobby. You bought you, me a ukulele. You absolutely need a hobby. I do. And uh, this book near killed me. This is the hardest book I've ever worked on as far as. You think so? Yeah, it was. It was torture. And that doesn't mean I'm not happy with how it came out. But it was hard. It was really hard. And it's just hard, you know. And I, right now. I miss my coffee shops in the worst way ever. Like I miss sitting in a coffee shop. It's my favorite, you know, non-family blah, blah, blah thing is like sitting in a coffee shop and just having a day to sit there and drink coffee and listen to the aroma, listen to the, you know, the ambiance. And I miss that so badly. And this is, it's it's just really hard, you know, and it's not fair because a lot of people, most people have it far worse than I do. But, um, I appreciate you saying that. I, uh, you know, it's a lonely profession. That's the one thing people don't, I do feel like that's the one thing people don't, like people want to be writers. You know, it has this like, I fell for it too. Like it has this like Hemingway sitting in a bar writing and blah, blah, blah. And like it has that kind of, you're jet setting across the country. You know, it has that to it, right? It has that. And I've kind of experienced that. Like I've had experiences like that. But the freaking, the in-between 
the Montana with Phil Jackson, Atlanta with Shaq, knocking on Jared Ryder's door is a lot of printing papers, is a lot of digging through clips, is a lot of, can I speak to you? Can I speak to you? Can I speak to you? Click, 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 click. It's just like... Also, just it's like a beast to sit down and write 2,000 words oh, every day for three months. It's a beast. And uh, so I know I appreciate that you appreciate it. I was going to say, don't you... We've now gone through this. You've been with me for every book. That's funny. We're like, now we're both in our late 40s. We started writing the books when I was in early 30s. Has it gotten any easier for you dealing with me when I write books? As I sit here freaking out about a tremor in my foot, like has it gotten easier for you or has it gotten harder for you? Uh, it's definitely easier because for me, it's like when I'm at work and I'm going to someone else's house, I can see something in their house that I, I can't see in myself mm-hmm. or, or with my own family. It's like I've seen it so many times. I can see coming a mile away how you're feeling, how you're going to feel, what it's going to be like. Um, there is a cycle to book writing in Ugh. terms of the emotional roller coaster of it all. Did you feel it when you wrote your book or no? Not really, because first of all, I only did six months for mine. It was pretty short, and it was something that I had worked on in my head in my practice for 10 years. So yeah. it, my experience was definitely different. It's the only thing that I think was the same was sitting down, staring at the computer, writing words every single day for a few months. Like at the end, that's just mind-numbing. Like I just felt really brain-dead at the end. Uh, but then it's so funny because then you have to write, you know, column after column after column about the thing you already wrote like mm-hmm. 30,000, 60,000 words about. Um, so, but I, I do see, I do see what you're going through cyclically. And I actually don't think that this book was any harder than other ones. It's just, this is the most recent and they're all hard. The writing of this one was really hard. Mm. It was hard. The team books are harder than the biographies. Because oh yeah. You have to escape the seasonal vacuum, yeah. you know, and, but yeah, anyway. Well, real proud of you. Thanks, Earl. You did a great job. You're very kind to me. You treat me well. I could use a few more like back reps, but otherwise it's pretty freaking mm. good. And you know, I'll keep you till the next book. We'll see what happens. I want to thank today's guest host, Catherine Perlman, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow her on Twitter at the Family Coach and buy her awesome parenting book, Ignore It Everywhere. Also, my new book, Three Ring Circus. Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty drops September 22nd, but it's available for advanced purchase everywhere. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, buy my book. No, I'm just kidding. Keep writing.